Now, it's good to be here this afternoon, or this morning, getting ahead of myself, and to have the privilege of opening the Word of God together. Just to correct one thing that John said, uh, I have no interest in being the Premier of Ontario. I've already spoken to the Lord and put my dibs in to be Governor of Bermuda. <laughs> so, I hope that's not like uh, the mother of James and John asking for her sons. <laughs> but I'll take Bermuda over Ontario any day, especially the winter. I'll read, please, in Philippians, in chapter 1. Philippians, chapter 1, and we will read from verse 12. Now, I'm going to have to assume this morning that most of you in the audience have some familiarity with this little four-chapter letter, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And just a, a quick word of background, I was asked at the beginning of this year, back in January, to share with Peter Ramsey in a uh, conference down in Tampa, and the topic was arranged by Peter, and it was to take up the book of Philippians. And I was asked to speak um, the first message at that conference on chapter 1. And uh, at least one person is here today, my niece Megan is here, who was at that little gathering. And Megan will hear a lot of things I say today which uh, build on some of the things that I said there. I had never spoken on this verse before, that conference, and uh, this message is quite personal because this verse has really challenged me, helped me, been very real to me over the nine months since, during 2018. So... What I'd like to talk about today, this morning, is what is your life? John Dennison, of course, had no idea what I was going to speak on, but the last minute or two of his message is really exactly the burden of my heart for the next 40 minutes. What is your life? Because we are going to read about a man who sums up his life by saying, for to me, to live is Christ. I've read that hundreds of times. I've found it incredibly searching over the past year or so. So we'll just read a little bit here in chapter 1, and then we'll consider this subject together using Paul, the apostle, as an example. So Philippians chapter 1, he's writing from prison. He's writing to these Christians in Philippi that he loves. And he says in verse 12, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Now, Paul's writing to these Christians in Philippi. He knew that they knew that he was in prison. He knew that their knowledge of his situation being in prison had likely caused them a fair bit of concern and stress. They didn't like him being in prison. He wasn't able to travel around and preach. He wasn't able to come and visit them. He wasn't able to serve the Lord as they had known him to be able to serve the Lord. And so they were not happy with the circumstances, and they imagined that poor Paul was probably wilting under the circumstances he found himself in in prison. And so that's what he's addressing here in chapter 1. He says, my bonds in Christ, verse 13, are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, 
knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose I wot not, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. So this question, what is your life? I have been challenged by it myself. Paul says this little statement uh, here in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, for to me to live is Christ. And I would ask you, as I have tried to do myself, to just stop and search your heart and say, how would I fill in that sentence? For to me, to live is, what would you say? Not what you think you should say, what would you say? What would the evidence say? What is it that makes you get up in the morning, other than just sheer obligation and the alarm going off and you have to get up? When you first wake up, what do you think about? When you're in the shower, best meditation of my days in the shower, what fills your mind? Where do you find, when you have spare time, where do you find your mind immediately going to? What are the things that if you are honest and you dig deep, what are the things that you truly live for? What are the things that excite you? What are the things that interest you? What are the things that make your life worth living? Now, John touched on it at the very end of his message in a somewhat offhanded or negative way. I'm not saying that critically. But I think if we're honest, we all have quite a number of supports or pegs or pillars that together constitute the underpinning of our life. And to me, the words that Paul says here are incredible. For to me, to live is Christ. And that's why he's able to say to die is gain. So I would like to just go through with you in my own sort of challenge in this area, some of the things that we learn from Paul in terms of what it means to have a life that is founded solely on Christ. Now, Christ permeates the letter to the Philippians. Chapter 1, for to me to live is Christ. Chapter 2, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Chapter 3, I count everything as loss for the surpassing excellence of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Read the four chapters. Paul practices what he says here. Christ is everything to this man. But I challenge my heart and say, what is Christ to me. 
The first category of things I want to talk about are what I would call faulty foundations. Things that you can't build a life on. And yet, if we're honest, things that probably form quite a bit of the pillars supporting my life and your life in terms of our interests and our appetites and our activities and what we truly live for. What are some of the faulty foundations for life? Well, number one, possessions. Luke chapter 12, the Lord Jesus makes this statement. A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Do you know the context of that? What's the context in Luke chapter 12? Well, it's the parable of the rich farmer and the man whose fields were full and his barns were full and he takes stock and he says, I'll tear down my barns, I'll build greater and I'll say to my soul, soul thou hast much goods laid up for many years, take thy knees, eat, drink and be merry. And God says, thou fool. Now we use that parable and that passage in the gospel and rightly so. To point out to people the emptiness and the futility of a life that is simply looking at the here and now and the accumulation of wealth and the enjoyment of that on myself. Eat, drink, and be merry. But you know, that truth is incredibly searching to us as Christians as well. To what extent is your life and my life resting on a foundation of materialism? possessions, and wealth, and the security that we think wealth brings. And the fact that we can stop and take stock and think we are secure and we are well set for a good number of years. If I'm honest, there's certainly a pretty decent chunk of my life that finds its sense of meaning in possessions. And if you don't really think that, how would you do if all by one by one they started being taken away from you? What if instead of driving the BMW or the, uh, I'm not picking on BMWs, I drive a Volkswagen Atlas. What if instead of driving a Volkswagen Atlas, I drove a 1975 Dodge Caravan? Would I be the same man? What if through circumstances beyond my control, I lost my home? It was foreclosed. It was gone. And I was living in a small rented accommodation with my family. Would I be the same man? Would I lay my head on my pillow at night with the same sense that for to me to live is Christ? Or if one by one my possessions began to be taken away, would I find that an awful lot of what it is that makes me tick day to day is suddenly crumbling? And I'm searching for my identity. I would challenge you because I think that an awful lot of our sense of identity and purpose and who we really are is far more tied up in our possessions and our pursuit of them than we would care to honestly admit. I'm not throwing stones at anybody. I'm searching my own heart. Possessions are a faulty foundation for life. Paul certainly shows that. You come to chapter 4 of this little letter. Paul says, I know what it's like to abound. I know what it's like to suffer loss. He says, I know what it's like to have plenty. I know what it's like to have absolutely nothing. But he says, you know what I've learned? 
Whatever state I'm in, therewith I'll be content. He says, I can do all things through Christ who pours his strength into me. Second faulty foundation that I think props a lot of us up a lot more than we care to admit is popularity. There is something in the human soul that craves acceptance and approval. We like positive feedback. We get a sense of significance and we get a sense of value and worth by receiving positive feedback from others and feeling popular and liked. Social media has taken very good English words and has absolutely pulverized them. So you post something and you want people to like you. Now, like's not a terribly strong word, but it's been tremendously weakened by that. So be honest. When you put something out there on Snapchat or Instagram or the older generation on Facebook or wherever it is, do you not find, you would never want to admit it, you don't even have to admit it to me, just be honest with yourself. Do you not find that very shortly after you post it, maybe the next morning you wake up, what's the first thing you do? You go and you look at it and you see how many people liked it. How many people commented? What did they say? Who commented? Who didn't comment? Why didn't they comment? And we derive a tremendous amount of our sense of worth and our sense of life by clamoring after this positive feedback and being popular. Now, that's certainly a hallmark of the society all around us. And I know that we have been built for relationship, and I know that there are healthy relationships which are conducive to spiritual growth. But what is dangerous is when I find any segment of my sense of purpose and living and foundation by this insatiable quest for popularity. I was going to say it's particularly pervasive among younger people. I'm not sure that's even fair. It's maybe particularly pervasive among middle-aged 50-year-olds like me, 54, if you want to know exactly. Wandering along in midlife crisis, wondering, you know, who do I matter to? Does anybody notice? Constantly broadcasting, wanting to be heard, looking for that feedback. A life that is built on a foundation of popularity. It's a faulty foundation for anybody, but especially for a Christian. Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ. Paul had found lots of popularity in his day. Paul had fallen out of favor with many people by this day. And a few years later when he writes 2 Timothy, he's a lonely man in a dungeon. All those in Asia had turned against him. Paul could still say, for to me, to live is Christ. Third faulty foundation, closely aligned with popularity is prestige or position or power. That sense that I am looked to, I am recognized, I am respected. People want to hear me. How many followers do I have? That's another good Bible word. Follow is a good word in the Bible, depending on what you follow. But people measure their sense of prestige and significance by how many people are following me. That I am influencing. A thirst and a quest and a sense that my life's identity is found in the position to which I have attained and the power and prestige that goes along with that. That works in politics. I would say it works in most workplaces and in society. Doesn't work in Christianity. 
Paul exemplifies that in this letter. He was the great apostle. He was head and shoulders above most of the others. How does he describe himself in this epistle? Chapter 3, all the things that were gained to me, those I counted in past tense. I counted loss for Christ. In the moment of conversion, everything of power and prestige and influence that mattered in Paul's life, he says, I just reckoned it all as nothing for Christ. You know what challenges me in chapter 3? He doesn't just talk in the past tense, I counted loss for Christ. He goes on to say, yea, doubtless, and I count, present tense, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. To what degree is your life and your aim and your ambition and your goal and your sense of identity and value and self-worth, to what extent is it based on possessions, popularity, position or power or prestige? Or the last faulty foundation I would ask you to think about is pleasure. One of the hallmarks of the last days is that men will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now when we say lovers of pleasure, right away our minds sort of go to the, you know, the real reckless, wanton, immoral people who just fling themselves with reckless abandon into every type of ungodly behavior and we say they're lovers of pleasure. Well, yes, they are. Hedonistic lifestyles. But you know, lovers of pleasure actually strikes a lot closer to home than that. There's a real danger of a love of pleasure becoming a hallmark of my Christianity. Where my measure of how things are going spiritually is is how I feel. Now, we don't call it loving pleasure. We call it the joy of the Lord in modern Christian living. And so the measure of how things are going is, am I enjoying the Lord? Which becomes a euphemism for saying, am I happy today? Now, I know there is such a thing as the joy of the Lord, and I know it is our strength. But I would suggest to you that my experience is a byproduct, not the principal aim of living for Christ. Did Paul have a happy life? Read 2 Corinthians 12. There were some tough, tough days in Paul's life. Now, that doesn't mean that Christianity is measured by how dour I am or how tough things are or how uh, tremendously sad I can be. No. But what it does mean is this, is the pursuit is not my experience. The aim is not my pleasure. The measure is not how I feel. The aim and the goal of Christian living is Christ and only Christ. And if I live for Christ, there will be a joy that nothing else in the world can produce. But if I make my experience of pleasure my goal, I am building a life on a flimsy foundation. Whether personally or in collective testimony, the Bible and the honor of Christ must be our goal. Not whether something feels good or seems right or is enjoyable. Don't fall into the trap of simply pursuing self-gratification in life, especially as a Christian. It's a hallmark of our age, and it creeps its way into Christian living, where basically what I do and how I do it essentially is just what I want to do. Now, my kids tell me I have hang-ups, and there's things, you know, things that I hammer on, so maybe they're right, but bucket lists. I hate bucket lists. I hate the very concept of bucket lists. 
What is a bucket list? A bucket list is basically a, a list of self-gratifying goals, YOLO. Now, some old people think I've lost it up here and I'm speaking in tongues. What is YOLO? You only live once. What is the outworking of YOLO? A bucket list. You only live once, so gratify yourself. Make a list of all the things you want to do. And then pour yourself into doing them because you only live once. Paul says, yes, I only live once. And he says, my only desire really is that Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me, to live is Christ. So that's the first category, faulty foundations. Now let me hasten to say, this message is not intended to take my life or your life, I'll use my own, but to take my life, my experience, my daily reality, and one by one to just rip out every supporting peg until this little blubbering mass of 200 pounds of 54-year-old collapses and there's no life left. That's not my purpose today. Life is real. We all have to deal with possessions. We all have to deal with interactions and being popular or unpopular. We all have to deal with whatever position God puts us in. And we all have to deal with the emotional experience of life. These things, I'm not saying that you swear off them all and go live like a monk on a mountain. What I am saying is that if my life is simply built on these supports, then Christ has been supplanted in my experience. And I am not living the life he intended me to live. And to me, that's very searching. Second category I want to touch on very quickly is flimsy foundations. Flimsy foundations are even more searching. They strike even closer to home than the faulty foundations. Because all the things I've mentioned so far, I think we would all agree, life shouldn't be built on those things. But there are things that in and of themselves are, are valid. There are things that are even virtuous. And yet, they have an insidious way of creeping in and becoming my reason for living. My purpose, my identity, my foundation for life. First one I would suggest to you is productivity, education, career, business. And I'm not talking now about just to get rich. That's the faulty foundation, possessions. I'm talking about the actual activity, the process. Things that we have to do in life. Education. It's, it's good, it's virtuous to apply yourself to education. But it's dangerous if it starts to define you. It's good to work. God designed man to work. Very dangerous if it starts to define who I am at my core. And if it was taken away, I, I'd, I'd be floundering. I'd, I'd no longer be the person I am. Nothing wrong with owning a business. Particularly dangerous if that business becomes your life. Maybe this area is particularly challenging for men. Because we have been given the responsibility of providing for our wives, for our families, if we're married and have children. We do derive a certain sense of value and, and purpose from being active and being productive. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's a very insidious danger of that beginning to define me. I told them down in Tampa that I was very searched on this point back in 2007. 
I had been in business for 20 years with John Klingen, owning a tent rental business up in Toronto. Uh, not a huge business, but 20 years, quite a while. Work hard, and you build a business. And then we sold it. And when we sold the business, uh, just shortly after John and Joanne went to Nicaragua, um, I was supposed to stay on for three years with the new owners of the business, and I would be the president, and I would help through the transition, and I would train their successor, and it all looked rosy, it all looked great. Until four months into the transition, they terminated my consulting contract. As I found out later, most business acquirers do, because they don't want to pay you the consulting fee. And I found myself at 43 years old, sitting at home. I would have told anybody at the time before that, business was just business. It just was a way to make a living, just support my family and, you know, support the Lord's work. And it's just a business. Yeah, it was. Until it was taken away. It wasn't ripped from me. I sold it. But I found myself going through, I didn't have a massive midlife crisis. I didn't buy a Harley and Leathers and ride across America. But I found myself sitting in my study at home some days, finishing my second or third cup of coffee. Kids are all gone to school. You know, Rachel, my wife, she's productive and busy doing what she does. And I'm sitting at my desk thinking, hmm, what will I do today? <laughs> and I had come out of an environment where my door was open in my office and people were coming in and they were asking me questions and my input mattered and my decision generally was final and everybody needed my input and I was very active and getting great feedback from building a business to finding myself sitting twiddling my thumbs thinking nobody really gives a rip what I think. There's nobody out there that particularly wants my input. And you know what I had to discover? My business defined me much, much more than I would ever have cared to honestly admit. A life that is founded only on education, profession, career, business, it's an empty life. Now again, I'll say used for the honor of God in its proper place, absolutely, it's an honorable thing. But when it becomes my foundation, it's a flimsy, flimsy foundation for living. So I'd ask you to search your life. I don't know very many of you here, but search your life. A few I know, Trevor, for to me to live is flying. I know it's hard to become a pilot. I know it's almost consuming to take on a career like that. Don't let it define you. Kevin, for to me to live is to build. I'm a builder. I'm a tent guy. I, I do tents. I'm a nurse. I'm not a nurse, but maybe you are. I'm a doctor. I'm an accountant. I'm a septic pumper. <laughs> I'm a successful businessman. I'm a Christian. Everything else takes second place to this foundation. For to me, to live is Christ. Second flimsy foundation relationships. Now this is becoming even more delicate, personal. You know, the real significant thing in life is, is quality relationships. Being a good husband, being a good father, being a quality friend, being a reliable co-worker, yeah, that's all true. 
But I would suggest to you there is a very subtle danger that even in those relationships, if Christ begins to be given second place and those things become my life, it's a flimsy foundation for living. You'll say, wow, that's really harsh. If the productivity one was maybe particularly susceptible, uh, something men were susceptible to, maybe this is one where a lot of sisters might struggle, especially mothers. Mothers who give 20 to 25 years of their life to raising a family. And then they hit a period in their life where that family, bit by bit, they spread their wings and begin to fly. And what started out as a totally dependent newborn and progressed through toddlers that, that you poured your life into raising, and then became teenagers that made you pull your hair out, but your life was still very intertwined with theirs. And now suddenly they're in their 20s, and they really don't seem to need you much anymore. And you find yourself floundering for purpose in life. Two decades have gone by, and now who am I? What am I? You're still a mother. Always will be. I look at my own mother, 85 years old. She tells me, Andrew, you never stop praying for your children. Through the successive transitions in life, do not allow these things to become our foundation. You say, can you show that scripturally? Yes, Abraham. Abraham had a relationship as a father that really trumped everything else. It was God-given. It was God-provided. God promised him a son, his only Isaac. But in Genesis chapter 22, God puts his finger on something. Even in that relationship, God says... Your Isaac can never take my place. So Abraham, take your Isaac, your only Isaac that you love, and offer him up on an altar. I'm a father. I'm actually a grandfather now too. It just popped in my head there, first time. To what degree does my family define who I am? Now, there are some here who likely have been through a lot more than I have. Not likely. There are some here who have been tested on this. I haven't been. When a child is taken away, when a mother or a father is gone, when some of the nearest and dearest to you that you have poured your life into and built your life around and they're no longer there, do you find that it absolutely rattles your foundation or can you still say, for to me, to live is Christ. The final flimsy foundation is spiritual service possible for a life to be defined and wrapped up in what I am doing for Christ. Now, if the first category was susceptible, uh, was one where men that work secularly might be susceptible, and the second one is for men and women in family life and relationships, this third one may be particularly a danger for men that have a public role, preachers, overseers, Men who have a spiritual service that puts them in a position of prominence or a position where they receive a lot of feedback and they see a lot of direct impact from their service. It's possible for that to become a defining, underpinning, foundational identity for a man or a woman in her sphere of spiritual service. And rather than being something that I'm pleased to have God use me to do, it actually becomes who I am. So that when it begins to slip away through circumstances or age or 
I'm absolutely left floundering. A man who has preached for 40 or 50 years and now he can't. And he just feels washed up and useless. What's life now? I can't preach anymore. That was Paul. Paul loved to preach. He says, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. He loved to preach. He didn't live to preach. Because here he is in prison and he can't preach. And there's others out there preaching. And what does Paul say? Here I am, wasting away in prison. I want to get out so that I can preach. No, Paul says, they're out there preaching. Some of them are doing it, hoping to add affliction to my bonds. Some of them are doing it for good motives. But he says, I'll say this, Christ is being preached, and in that I'll rejoice. Because for me, to me, to live is Christ. What about it today? I've, I've had to do this. I've, I've done this. I've sat with these faulty foundations in the quietness of my own soul. These flimsy foundations. I've searched my heart. I've said, Lord, what makes me go through each day? What is it that provides feedback to me that makes me think life is worth living? My possessions? Popularity? My position? My prestige? Pleasure? Education, career, business, family, relationships, preaching, overseer. What is it? What's your life? Now, like I said, I don't want to depress anybody. I'm not picking away at your life here. I'm not wanting you to feel like a nobody or a worthless nothing. On the contrary, what I would love to leave you with is this. In all of these areas, there is a life of honoring Christ. There is a life of productivity in the true eternal sense of value. All of these areas are areas that are real, that we have to live in. But we can only live and thrive, and I would even say survive spiritually, in all of these areas if we understand what it is to have a life that is founded on Christ. So as I end, I want to just list off seven reasons why the only firm foundation for life is Christ. He is a firm foundation. He's available to you. Paul lived it. I could never honestly write the words that Paul said other than as an ambition. I wish it was true that I could say for to me to live as Christ. It's available to me. It's available to you. Here you go. He is the only one who knows me completely, perfectly. You want to be understood? We all want to be understood. Just struggle to be understood. It hurts to be misunderstood. There is someone who understands me completely. I can come into his presence. Like the psalmist, I can say, search me, O God, know my heart. He knows every single corner of my consciousness. Number two, he loves me unconditionally. That's amazing. If some of you really knew me, you'd love me a lot less than you do. He knows me perfectly, and he couldn't possibly love me more. He wants nothing but my best, and he loves me. Number three, he cares for me immeasurably. I matter to him. You want to talk about significance? What is it that makes life significant? If nobody ever responded to one post that you put out there in social media, you build your life on the solid foundation of this, the Son of God, loves me, and I matter to him. 
And he has a heart that beats with interest in my life. And my life is not worth pouring out looking for feedback from everybody else which is so paltry and faltering and fickle. When there is one who says, bring your cares to me because I care for you. Paraphrasing Peter's words, casting all your care on him for he cares for you. Number four, he can satisfy my deepest needs. I've already said you don't pursue pleasure as a Christian, but you pursue Christ and you will find that he can give you living water that will satisfy things that nothing in this world will ever reach. Number, four, number five, he's infinitely capable. He's omnipotent. You talk about having a friend in high places or having somebody in a position of power. I don't mean this to sound flippant or in any way to do what John said we should be careful not to do, to just bring him down from his lofty throne and his position of preeminence. But what I do want to remind us of is this, is that the one who loves me and cares for me is the God of the universe. He will never once wring his hands when I come and say, Andrew, there's nothing I can do for you. He's the omnipotent God. Number six, he's always the same. He's immutable. Never changes. Friends change. People's views change. People you once were like-minded with and you shared a very comfortable commonality. And then things change and things get rethought. And even the best of earthly friends, sometimes they change. Circumstances change. It can be very destabilizing. There's something tremendous about having a life that is built on a foundation of a man who will never, ever change. We'll never, ever come and find he's not what we were used to. We'll never come and find that he has gone around and changed and something that we loved in his character, now it just seems to be going in a different direction. Never. Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday, today, and forever. And finally, number seven, he will always be there. He's unfailing. That's really his ultimate promise to us. He hasn't promised us success in life. He hasn't promised us a life that'll be free from heartache. He hasn't promised us answers for all the problems that come along. We would love answers to some things. He's never promised us answers. But you know what he has promised us? He's promised us himself. And we can bank on it. He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you so that we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I, I'll be honest with you. I sit in envy almost, in a, not in a bad way, of the Apostle Paul. And I search my little life with all of my failures. I would just love to a greater degree to be able to say truthfully, for to me, to live is Christ.